I got all, I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. Welcome. American Vandal, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. American mass media is born in 1835, the same year, coincidentally, as Samuel Clemens, with the founding of the New York Herald, the first of the so-called penny papers. Mark Twain would later publish in several of the most popular penny papers, including James Gordon Bennett's Herald and Horace Greeley's New York Tribune. The rapid expansion and diversification of American periodicals would continue for the next four decades before trustification and syndication would produce the first wave of media conglomerates owned by men like Frank Gannett, S.S. McClure, and Joseph Pulitzer, all of whom Mark Twain also had close ties with. In the closing years of his life, Twain strategically contracted to have the collected editions of his works published with the Harper Brothers' house because he believed he could induce them to generously abide the terms of his book contract by publishing his new shorter works in their magazines, or threatening not to. In the thriving magazine marketplace of the early 20th century, Harper's could not risk aggravating the nation's oldest and most well-known literary brand. Among the new publications born during these halcyon days of American periodical publishing in the first quarter of the 20th century was The New Yorker, which now sits unrivaled atop an industry that is much changed and arguably eroding. In this episode, we're discussing The New Yorker's history, as well as a recent film, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which fictionalizes that history through The New Yorker's so-called golden age in the middle decades of the 20th century. My guests are two scholars who are currently collaborating on analysis of The New Yorker's back catalog. Nora Shalon is a graduate student in English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, she recently published The Ghosts of Patriarchy on Edith Wharton's ghost stories in Los Angeles Review of Books. Dan Sinekin is assistant professor of English at Emory University and author of American Literature and the Long Downturn, Neoliberal Apocalypse. He also co-edited a special issue on post-45 publishing in American literary history last year. For more about our guests, as well as a bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash French Dispatch. You're working in tandem on a project related to the archives of the New Yorker. Maybe you can talk about what that project is, and then maybe each of you can talk a little bit about why you find the New New Yorker a particularly interesting archive for publishing and what we might learn from engaging with the New Yorker both as a real archive and as a mythologized mm-hmm. institution. Mm-hmm. 
let me start this way. Dan sort of asked on Twitter earlier this week whether people enjoyed reading The New Yorker, or whether they read The New Yorker. And then there was a kind of good amount of sheepish acknowledgement that, yes, I read The New Yorker, but sort of the, the kind of shame for, of academics. And so I think that The New Yorker is interesting because it occupies this weird intermediate place in the ecosystem where it has a lot of cultural power, right? It has intensely close relationships to traditional publishing and Random House and Knopf and other places. And so it's instructive, I think, to look at The New Yorker as part of a larger ecosystem that is insulated and siloed. And I think that has ramifications on questions of like diversity and representation. Our work for now focuses largely on the fiction section it has a, a strange relationship to the literary marketplace writ large, whether that means that the New Yorker is sort of ahead of the curve and is setting the standard for what we publish uh, in the traditional literary marketplace, or whether the New Yorker sort of imbibes that already and sort of um, reinforces it is a question. The New Yorker, like Nora says, has this unique place in American literary history. I've been working for five, six, seven years now on a study on the conglomeration of the publishing industry. This starts in the 60s, 1960s. Prior to that, most publishing houses were smallish, independent-ish. But in the 60s, large multimedia conglomerates start buying up all the publishing houses. And by the time you get to you know the year 2000, there's just six global media conglomerates that run most of trade publishing in the United States. I've been really interested in what this means for fiction. How did that change how fiction was written, produced? And as I've been doing this study, one thing that kept coming up is the New Yorker as this crucial sort of safe zone or buffer for writers. It offers writers a certain sinecure. It provides them with a, a, a certain amount of freedom such that they can make enough money that they don't have to go work in a university, that they can make enough money that they can stick to a certain amount of aesthetic independence that the money they're making as a New Yorker writer allows them. And so you get people like John Updike or John Cheever or Ann Tyler or later on Laurie Moore and on and on and on earlier John O'Hara who are New Yorker writers, right? And being a New Yorker writer has implications for one's labor situation, which has implications for the kind of work that one produces. And then, then as Nora said, there's also this fascinating interchange between the New Yorker and Random House is this massively important and increasingly the most massive of all trade houses, mm -hmm. which kind of has sw successively swallowed so much and is now currently attempting to swallow Simon & Schuster. Even without Simon & Schuster, it has something close to 50% of the share for trade. It's not Penguin Random House since 2013. But, but the Random House long had a close relationship with the New Yorker, which became even closer Sir Knopf became part of the New Yorker in 1961, and after Cy Newhouse purchased first Random House and then the New Yorker, 
purchased Random House in 1980-81. He purchased The New Yorker in 1985. And then two years after he buys The New Yorker, he fires William Sean, who's been the editor for 35 years, and plants Robert Gottlieb, who was Toni Morrison's editor for her entire career at Knopf. Even after he left Knopf to go to The New Yorker, he continued to be Toni Morrison's editor. So Newhouse plants Gottlieb at The New Yorker. After Gottlieb leaves, after five years, Tina Brown comes in. Tina Brown is married to Harold Evans, who is the top guy at Random House when she's the editor at The New Yorker. So there's this close tie between The New Yorker and the highest echelons of the publishing world in American literary history. I mean, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Sean goes to Random House in a kind of honorary position after he leaves The New Yorker. He actually goes to FSG, which is like... Roger Strauss at the, at the head of FSG is like, you know, Random House's kind of enemy number one. Okay, so even more complicated. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this, Dan. I assume that your work is building to some extent upon Andre Shifflin's sort of talking about conglomeration in publishing, but also this transformation of American cultural space during the post-45 period. Mm-hmm. In film and television, right, the sort of you know media amalgamation becoming the process for understanding all forms of mass culture. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the effect of the conglomerate in sort of br- the sort of broadest elevator pitch terms mm-hmm. on specifically fiction, it sounds like you're interested in, and the sort of aesthetics that are prioritized in American popular fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you brought up Andre Schifrin. Andre Schifrin published this memoir in the year 2000 or 2001 about his insider view of how conglomerates ruined, in his opinion, publishing. Andre Schifrin is this key figure in my book. I open the book with him. I close the book with him. There was a, there was a signal event when he was fired from Random House in 1990. It was a massive deal. He had been at Pantheon since 1962. He's an Oxbridge trained. His dad was one of the basically founders of Pantheon. Pantheon is this really highly esteemed press, which is purchased by Random House in 1962. Schifrin goes there in 1963. So Random House buys a Knopf in Pantheon to get these prestigious houses in the early 60s. Pantheon introduces Michel Foucault to the United States is Studs Terkel's lifetime publisher, publishes E.P. Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm. So like this really important publisher and Andre Schifrin's the guy. Andre Schifrin is the guy who runs that house under Random House. So for years, Random House, it gets purchased by, by RCA in 1965, but there's this guy, Bob Bernstein, who's the president of Random House and manages to hold off RCA and everybody else and let Schifrin do his thing for decades, right? And in the 80s, so Sainu House again, this tycoon who is like kind of buddies with Donald Trump, which is how, if I'm remembering right, Sainu House's like friendliness with Donald Trump is how the art of the deal ends up going to a, a random house in print. So Sainu House fires Bernstein in the late 80s after getting rid of Bob Gottlieb to The New Yorker. And then when Bernstein gets fired, finally, who had been protecting Schifrin for all these years, Newhouse brings in this econ PhD, Matt, you like that, mm-hmm. named Alberto Vital, who used to run Fiat, the, the Italian car company. He's an Italian guy, he's an econ PhD, he comes into Random House as the new president, and he basically sits down with Schifrin and says, look, 
you're not making enough money. You're going to have to make some changes with your budgeting. And Schifrin's like, fuck you. I've been doing this for 30 years. I brought Foucault to the United States. What do you want? And Vital's like, well, you're fired. His firing was this huge event. All these people go and show up and protest outside Random House. So it's Turkle, of course, Kurt Vonnegut, Barbara Ehrenreich. All these people are like marching in front of Random House. Like it's been this war of attrition. Everyone's felt it. Everyone's like deeply feels the process of conglomeration who's in the book, New York book world and has felt it for decades. And this moment of shift from being fired feels to them like this kind of like dangerous blow, this like pivotal moment to get to the question that you asked about what has this actually meant for fiction. One of the main things that has happened over the 20 previous years from 1970 to 1990 is the decreasing influence of the editor and the increasing influence of marketing and publicity in terms of who gets to acquire things, but also with marketing departments having and sales departments having increasing say on, or veto power on questions of acquisitions. But then on the other end of things, you have editors having decreasing amount of time to actually edit books starting in the 70s because they are increasingly needing to fill up profit and loss forms and pay attention to the business side of their job. And so you have literary agents entering in on that other side to do more of the work of the editor in the 70s and 80s. Now, a literary agent is in a very different structural position than an editor. An editor is sitting inside of the house. They've got a certain amount of protection in in that job, being able to do, they need to do books that sell, but other people are responsible for selling the books. So they kind of get to focus on making the best books according to their personal judgment with some, you know, fudging there for their personal judgment, having to also have some degree of saleability. But literary agent is much more directly structurally connected to capital and much more directly structurally like connected to the market. And, And the literary agent is this kind of living instantiation to me of the like metaphor of the invisible hand. They're really trying to lubricate the market as much as possible by getting, acquiring, selling books that they think are going to sell. And Laura B. McGrath is doing this incredibly important work on the rise and centrality of agents to contemporary publishing. What happens is you have the vision of the market that an agent thinks is what the market wants being projected onto writers and writers then inhabiting that style or form. Something that a lot of people have noticed, literary genre fiction became incredibly prominent by the late 90s and early 2000s with writers like Juno Diaz, Colson Whitehead, Cormac McCarthy's first is Westerns and his post-apocalypse book. You have writers taking on genre techniques coming from the literary fiction side. And there's all sorts of reasons that I draw like the actual mechanisms in the book of why that starts happening in as early as the 80s, actually. That that would be the clearest and most obvious shift that we can that we can see. I'll leave it at that for now. What a lot of what Dan says captures some of the themes that we've been developing over the course of this series, things like gigification, extraction, right? The extent to which the changes in the structures of publishing are often to increase precarity for the producers, the wage labor, whether that is actual writers or whether that is copy editors. And the agent's role is is more diffuse and more profit-centered. The kind of traditional role of the editor that we see romanticized in something like Wes Anderson's French Dispatch, it seems to, to be fading. And one of the things that I know you're you mentioned before, and I want I want to sort of dig a little deeper into and I'll start with Nora, is that within this 
conglomerated system, it would seem that the dream that is operationalizing the agreement to extract labor from writers, the, the sort of incentive is that the book contract somewhere at the end, where they, they actually get that marketing team that has increasing power working on their behalf. And so it would seem that the sort of prestige publications like The New Yorker and The Atlantic and maybe The Nation and Harper's and places like that, their affiliation with those publishing houses allows them to maybe make demands upon contributors, freelancers, gig workers, because they can offer not only some form of paycheck and some form of prestige, but also build those relationships, right? Exposure and then the introduction to whether it's a literary agent or an editor or publisher, right? That seems to be the, the model. And I'm curious, as the linkage of periodical publishing and book publishing becomes more robust and the, there's, there's a greater interdependence or mutual dependence, how does that change how a place like The New Yorker treats its writers, its staff, etc.? Let me say this to start, which is that I don't think that The New Yorker accepts any work from any writer that doesn't have a literary agent. So this, I think, speaks to Dan's point about the importance of the literary agent. So Deborah Treisman, in a recent interview, says something to the effect of, it's a pleasure to bring to American readers, previously unknown, unknown writers. And the way that she kind of frames that is unknown international writers. That's how The New Yorker brings new writing to an American public. What it doesn't do is is bring people who don't have agents, who don't have sort of something in the works in terms of a book deal. Like if you look at someone like Luno Diaz, who has sort of a good relationship with The New Yorker, who's actually one of the writers who's published the most for The New Yorker, he's in the top 10%. He only sort of gets acknowledged by The New Yorker after he has a book deal. Drown comes out in The New Yorker the same year that his collection of short stories comes. So that's already in the works when he when he makes his New Yorker debut. Then there are other people like Zizi Packer, who had a literary agent, but didn't have a book deal at the time. And so I think that The New Yorker is very careful to frame itself as something that is at the cutting edge of the publishing industry, but that it relies really heavily on the work that is already done by people like literary agents there's this kind of flip remark in the French Dispatch where the narrator says something to the effect of he treats the editor who stands in for Ross or Sean or some kind of hybrid, treated his writers like prodigies and then treated everyone else like shit. Famously gracious with his writers, Arthur Jr. was less courteous with the rest of the magazine staff. And I think that is sort of ironic, but also like a profoundly sincere point about the New Yorker's cultural workplace, like the culture in the workplace that part of what made The New Yorker so good is things like Hiroshima, Silent Spring, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And those pieces are not fiction pieces. They rely heavily on the kind of labor of fact-checking and copy editing. Those are the pieces that, that launched The New Yorker into the so-called golden age. And so, yeah, there's a kind of sincerity to that comment that I think is writing off of how troubling that is uh, in The French Dispatch. 
And certainly, I mean, the gatekeeping through literary agents is a somewhat new development. I mean, I remember at least as recently as the 1990s, the New Yorker was open to submissions where, you know, how many of those actually got in the magazine is probably a minute number. But part of the sort of mythology of the New Yorker was Salinger submitting dozens of stories before he eventually became, you know, one of their prominent writers. Or as we see in the Fridge Dispatch, the Howitzer character, as you said, the the high of Sean and Ross going out and finding Roebuck Wright out of nowhere, just based upon some sort of random clippings he had sent in or found. Definitely, we, we, we mythologize the New Yorker as this place that has a kind of meritocratic entryway. Yeah. But in fact, as you say, there is this, uh, you know, this structure before you even get to the periodical itself. Anyone who wants to further pursue this line of thought about who is able to write where now needs to read the work being published by Claire Grossman, Juliana Spar, and Stephanie Young, who have all the receipts to show the big picture in which The New Yorker is kind of like the highest tier of many, 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 tears for a mainstream American writing in which the vast majority of people trying to write, the vast majority of people going to MFA programs, maybe getting published in smaller regional literary magazines, but are not having anything like financial success, um, are barely getting published. And it's only in the highest echelons that you start having writers getting published into The New Yorker and winning big prizes and getting good book deals. And those people who are who are getting there are people who've gone to, you know, Juno Diaz went to Cornell. But like, you know, most of these writers are going to have an Ivy League pedigree or they'll have gone to Iowa MFA. <laughs> that's even more true in the 21st century for writers of color have to have even a stronger pedigree by the standards of the day in terms of their CV in order to ever make it. So like what you're saying, Matt, it's not just the literary agent, but it's like your socioeconomic class position growing up. It's the undergrad program. It's your MFA program. And those are the things that then get you to the literary agents, right? Because literary agents are like hanging around Marilyn Robinson. She's retired now, but you know, her classroom, I hang around Iowa City, you know, uh, drinking in the bars around there and meeting the, 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 the students. And that's that's how it works. You raise a question that I wanted to, to dig into. I know both of you have been doing research on the extent to which what I believe is our assumption that in a period probably from the, you know, the 60s onward, American publishing has platformed more women, right, more people of color, more queer people, right, and maybe even a wider range of people from different class backgrounds. And yet it would seem, as Dan was laying out there, that the extent to which book publishing, periodical publishing, Ivy League universities, MFA programs become intersecting and interdependent with one another, the more that disadvantages marginalized voices. And so I know you've you've both been sort of studying the extent to which there is a explosion of writing from women and people of color in the late 20th and early 21st century. And I'm curious, what has been the effect of the sort of conglomerate era and the refiguring of what periodicals do 
on bringing those marginalized voices to a broader public. So, so I want to say two things. And, and one is I'm actually going to want to go back to something Nora was saying about how in both the film and in real life, the editor of The New Yorker, the editor of The French Dispatch, plays this kind of paternalistic role as a way of disciplining the staff. So let's let's just like... Put a pin in that. Put yeah. a pin in that because that's a perfect entry point to talk about the unionization drive in the 70s and, and how William Sean framed his resistance to that. Your question, Matt, about the rising multiculturalism of American literature is crucial one. One thing that, that recently surprised me was the work of Richard Jean So, who is a scholar that Nora and I are collaborating with on our project on The New Yorker. And Richard wrote a book called Redlining Culture and wrote a New York Times piece that featured the kind of most bombshell demographic data from that study. You know, we tell this story We've told this story for decades now that post-45 period of American literature is, is a period, especially starting in the 70s, of multiculturalism. What Richard shows is that, that that's not true, actually. If you go and look at what publishers were publishing, what the big publishers were publishing, there's no real dent in the whiteness of publishing in 95, 96, 97% of their lists were by white authors through to the end of the 20th century. That does, I believe, start to change very recently in the last five, 10 years, maybe. But one thing that that does in terms of conglomeration is in the 90s, there was, in fact, a movement that all the all the public public debate about the canon, all the curricular changes that were happening, schools were teaching more writing by writers of color. Like it was creating a market demand that conglomerates weren't reaching. And so this was filled in a couple of ways. One was by the rise of a movement for nonprofit publishing. So this didn't exist before the 1980s and it was an explicit response to conglomeration. All the fear that conglomerates were going to just produce books for the lowest common denominator. They were going to be doing celebrity memoirs and literary fiction was going to be out. It didn't exactly work that way, but that was the fear. And that created this response where people were like, let's do what has been done in opera and, and classical music and theater. And let's get foundations and the government to support the publishing. So it was this whole thing, this whole movement in the 80s. It kind of finally got into publishing fiction in a larger way in the 90s. This is Coffeehouse Press. This is Grey Wolf Press. This is Milkweed Editions. This is also when Schifrin is fired, he starts the new press has a nonprofit in 92. They start filling this role. So Karen Tay um, Yamashita uh, publishes with Coffeehouse. Percival Everett publishes with mm -hmm. Grey Wolf. And one of the signal things that happens with that, that publishing is because it's in a nonprofit, they're making it part of their mission to publish that with diversity. And so you get writers like Everett and Yamashita who are publishing, who are clearly being kind of coerced into the being, you know, a certain kind of tokenized value for this nonprofit who then fold into the writing itself, this ironization, this kind of rejection of playing the part of the ethnic at the house. Grossman, Spahn, Young talk about this in terms of poetry too. It happens in poetry too. As soon as you start making this kind of like public demand for performances of, of ethnicity in the writing, then the performers are going to ironize it and satirize it and play with it. The, the reason we have nonprofits is because of conglomeration. So this is part of the whole larger field. And so that sort of self-ironizing multiculturalism is one effect of conglomeration.
If I can just add to those points with specific New Yorker data, a couple of months ago, Erin Overby, who's the archive editor at The New Yorker, tweets this sort of damning thread where she says things like only 1% of a certain genre of writing is, is edited by anyone who is not white. And so there are these damning statistics that remind us, like Richard So's work, that big players like The New Yorker and like Random House like to cultivate this myth of uh, diversity and multiculturalism that when you look at statistically is not actually the case. And I actually have the data up here in front of me of the fiction section, which Erin Overby doesn't talk about. She talks about profiles and other nonfiction sections. But the the fiction section, the top 10 authors that account for over a thousand stories from 1945 to 2019 are all white. And there are two women and they are like easily deduced from what we know about the New Yorker and it's Mavis Gallant and it's Sylvia Townsend Warner. And if you increase that even to sort of the top 20, that ratio doesn't change all that much. It's still all white. It's, It's still mostly male. And so I think that the New Yorker likes to associate itself with people like you know, Diaz or uh, Zadie Smith or these sort of figures that it includes in its mythology, but that when you look at statistically, don't actually account for a large portion of the fiction that's published. James Baldwin published, I think, only the long piece from The Fire Next Time. I mean, I think that's like right. the only thing he published in his prolific career at The New Yorker. Right. Um, and right. they will never stop reminding us. Right. And I think Toni Morrison, there's no review of The Bluest Eye. Toni Morrison doesn't start even writing for The New Yorker until the 90s, until she's sort of well-established. Until her editor is literally the editor of The New Yorker. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I think that it likes, these these big players like to cultivate this, this myth, but this is the point where statistics become, or like raw numbers just become really important. If you're Tony Morrison and you're already the biggest brand in American fiction at that time, then sure, <laughs> right? Then they'll publish. You. Then she's then she, yeah, and then she's doing she's doing her buddy Bob Gottlieb a favor, you know? <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm going to pull that pen out because I do think this is a, a perfect time to sort of transition into talking a little bit about the film itself. Certainly, this is a mythologizing work. And it clearly finds its origins, to some extent at least, in Wes Anderson's own nostalgia and fetishization of the New Yorker. Right? He talks about like his collection of back issues, and you know he has a very material relationship with the magazine that seems to be rooted. Although he he's clearly interested in its modern phase, it, the part that he wants to really focus on is a previous era, right? Perhaps even a early twentieth century version of the New Yorker. And you mentioned Nora that the the figure of Howitzer, the figure of the editor in the French Dispatch, is characterized in large part by his sort of ferociously protective uh, attitude towards writer, and then his sort of dismissal of everybody else. And so, I'm going to go back to that pin that Dan said that the sort of relationship between the editors at the New Yorker and their writers is just one version of the labor relationships within the magazine. Anderson, yeah, he's obsessed with The New Yorker. He talks about, in an interview with Terry Gross about Moonrise Kingdom, that the film is something like a memory of a fantasy. It's a projection of a memory of a fantasy. And I think that can also be said about this film. It's a film that is portraying a memory of a fantasy, which is his 
youthful obsession, fetishization of the New Yorker. Like what was the fantasy that when he was younger and he was flipping through the pages of the New Yorker and living in there, what was the fantasy that that was producing for him in his head? What was the world that he was able to live in, in his own imagination. And I think that's what he's doing here is trying to bring that world to life. And in fact, I think that's what he's been doing in all of his films. I mean, I think there's a way that Wes Anderson's oeuvre is the filmic version of the New Yorker, uh, especially the New Yorker in in these early days that he's especially interested in here in the 30s, 40s, 50s, where you have, Adam Gopnik describes it he talks about Harry Ross. So uh, Harold Ross was the first editor and he came from Colorado and, and Utah. And then William Sean came from Illinois. So there's something interesting about the fact that both these guys are not New Yorkers themselves, but transplants. And they're both like obsessed themselves. They're both work all day and all night. And they, they both like live and breathe the New Yorker. They're both kind of obsessed with facts. Here's, here's how Gopnik puts it. It was the old time newspaperman's values, the love of hard fact, the goddamn it, there's a story in this swizzle stick enthusiasm that Ross brought to reporting, which turned it into literature. Straight statement, the power of the weird observation, unadorned observation, the love of facticity for its own sake, all of these things applied to ambitious writing kept it sane and funny. And he also describes it elsewhere, the the style of of the New Yorker as having a wild exactitude, right? And all of these things you could say about Wes Anderson's movies too. There's this sort of love of particularity and specificity and the sort of quirky telling detail that's just jammed in there. And so you can start to see how Wes Anderson kind of formed his own aesthetic out of a lifetime of reading The New Yorker. To try to bring it back to this pin we have in, I read The French Dispatch as an allegory for Wes Anderson's entire career. I think it's an anthology piece. He's presenting this as an issue of The New Yorker. You could also imagine his like body of work as comprising something like, you know, the filmic version of Years Worth of The New Yorker, where he's the Harold Ross William Shawn figure, Wes Anderson is, he's this sort of benevolent tyrant. If there's someone whose vision mythologically unites The New Yorker, it is that editor figure. It is the Harold Ross or the William Shawn that makes it all cohere into a singular project. And it's Wes Anderson in his version, whereas those guys had editors and writers and contributors. Wes Anderson has his actors and this troupe of actors keeps coming back time and time again. And Wes Anderson lives and breathes his work. That's the thing you hear about his working process. And he makes it like feel like it's a family. They all go and have dinners together. The cast and the crew are sitting together. This then brings us to the idea of like, what can you get away with when you're working in a very hierarchical system, but you're pretending like it's a family? You're pretending like you're this benevolent tyrant. There's this incredible moment in this interview with The New Yorker that Jeffrey Wright, who plays Roebuck Wright, the James Baldwin-esque character in the film, they're talking and David Remnick's like, your style's the same in all your movies. The visual style of a Wes Anderson movie is so recognizable so quickly and also on the page as well. How did you invent that? And Wes Anderson's like, oh, you know, he's like, I, I don't know. I don't tell the actors much of anything. And and Jeff Jeffrey Wright just immediately starts cracking up. Immediately he's like <laughs> reverse. Can I jump in there? <laughs> yeah, please yeah. do. I think Maybe we need some fact checking. Wes is is wonderfully reserved. He he's a he's a he's a gentle guy. 
On set, he's a gentle general. Like you can never take any of these people who are working, like I've done some interviews for my book with like editors and you can never take editors or literary agents or directors like at face value for anything they're telling you because they, as long as they're working, because the editor is always going to tell you, oh, I didn't do anything. It was all the author. The director is going to be like, oh yeah, was, I didn't say, I didn't do anything. It was all, it was all the actors. Like that's just what they have to say. It's this, it's this like necessary can't, right? So Jeffrey Wright's like cracking up. He's like, no way, man. You're this gentle general on the set. Like the general is this figure of military command at the top of this hierarchy. These guys, Wes Anderson, William Sean, they wanted to pretend like this is all a family. We're all doing it for the love of the game. And if you're doing it for the love of the game, then who cares about how much money you're making? So here's, let me just read a little bit of, of this letter. So he's responding to this attempt in the 1970s to unionize because the staff is like, we've not been paid well enough. There's a lack of transparency and we think there should be more openness here and we think we should be paid better and compensated better. And Sean writes a letter to the staff and he says, I do think that a union would be harmful to our staff and therefore to the magazine. If I thought that a union would truly improve the lot of the staff, and I have in mind many considerations, including the financial, I would be for it because I cannot distinguish between the welfare of the staff and the welfare of the magazine. Editorially, our staff, our artists, our writers together are the magazine. Everything has been open to everybody. The organization has not been stratified or rigid. This openness and this freedom of movement have been basic to the way the New Yorker works. This is a place in which scores of people over the years have learned and have found themselves. We have not thought in job categories. I think that a union might introduce a rigidity in the way the office functions, hinder the free flow of people from one kind of work to another, reduce the opportunity for experiment and reduce the emphasis on the individual. I also think it would tend to polarize the office. What we have here, and that goes for all of us, is freedom. I don't want to see us give it up in any way. I believe we have at the New Yorker a friendly, gentle, free, informal, democratic atmosphere. It took several decades to achieve this atmosphere, and I think it would be tragic if we lost it. The New Yorker has been a miracle, but it is a miracle that can be extinguished. Nothing like it has ever happened before. Nothing like it will ever happen again. Please do what you can to preserve it. I think every like graduate student and adjunct professor in the country has been getting a letter a lot like that in the last couple of months, right? I'm at Columbia where we we just signed a contract, so this is kind. Thank you. I was not on strike because I'm not on appointment, but it, it was a win all the same. So still raw from those kind of emails from the premise, but. Dan, the, I was reading bits of my mistake this morning. Mm -hmm. Dan Meneker, who writes the, the N plus one piece that Dan mentioned, that's his memoir and part of his time at the New Yorker is there. And you can see the discrepancy between the picture that Sean is painting and the kind of the atmosphere that Meneker describes, right, as one governed by secrecy and kind of a toxic workplace. This I find this kind of hilarious. I worked for 26 years in the brilliant crazy house called The New Yorker, where a man stood in the middle of the hall and said loudly, I am the greatest metropolitan reporter alive, where a film critic regularly passed out drunk during movie screenings, where the editor, William Sean, a kind of genius, fell psychological prey to three or four short women who managed to get their hooks into them, where one of the cartoonists did his laundry in the men's room, 
where the succession politics that swirled around Sean rivaled those of the papal succession in the 11th century. <laughs> he, he sort of needs to be edited down, but he just has this, these, these descriptions at length about the work environment there. And so I think that that letter actually is a good microcosm of the kind of mythologizing work that happens in the public, in public discourse about the New Yorker all the time. The tr- toxic workplace in Wes Anderson is the quirky, eccentric yeah. dynamics between the staff and the editor who love each other. But in reality, a, a culture that allows for drunkenness, that allows for harassment, that builds competition between its various participants like is, is not necessarily a good one or a particularly productive one for art. Lots of lots of secrets were kept. Payment rates, this is quoting Menneker, payment rates for fiction were kept secret. Negative mail about writing was generally kept secret from the magazine's writers. Negative mail about a short story was often kept secret from even the story's editor. What appeared to be perfectly innocuous nonfiction assignments were often kept secret. Salaries were, of course, secret. So what is the mythology that Wes Anderson is creating in the French Dispatch, which on the one hand is, you know, a kind of fantasy world. But as Dad pointed out earlier, it's a fantasy that's based on real historicist interest from Anderson. And he has not been shy about making clear that this is an allegory, right? By pointing out not only that the French Dispatch is based upon the New Yorker, but that Arthur Howitzer, played by Bill Murray, is a hybrid of Harold Ross and William Shawn, that Owen Wilson plays Sazerac, who's kind of a Joseph Mitchell figure. You know, he's been pointing directly to the writers in The New Yorker who are models for the writers in The French Dispatch. And so I wanted to sort of take each of the individual episodes. As Dan said earlier, there's four main ones, right? But I'm going to work backwards. And as both of you have already pointed out, like the place that Baldwin gets in this film through the Jeffrey Wright, Roebuck Wright figure, who is clearly a kind of radical public intellectual of the sort that Baldwin certainly was. I feel like a way in which Wes Anderson is giving the New Yorker a kind of pass and buying into the narrative that Nora pointed out earlier, that, that this has been a platform for radical voices, marginalized voices, etc. And I thought it was particularly fascinating that that character was explicitly an amalgam of Baldwin and A.J. Liebling, one of whom I think of as kind of almost like a dime store Hemingway, right? And the other who is probably the post-45 writer with the highest approval rating maybe in, in American letters. And so I wanted to sort of start there. Like, what is happening in that particular fantasy? Bringing together Liebling and Baldwin in one character and giving them the final episode, a very quirky, heroic role that ends with the editor stepping in and actually making the correction, correcting James Baldwin in some ways, right? Saying, that's the best part of the whole thing. That's the reason for it to be written. This is the episode that actually makes the piece and it's the one that you've thrown in the trash, right? I, I was curious what you, you made of that particular allegorization, amalgamation, hybridization of these very clear historical precedents. And undoubtedly, the figure that has the greatest sort of cultural weight in our own time is Baldwin among all of these historical analogs. 
First of all, Jeffrey Wright is phenomenal. His performance may be my favorite in a film full of great performances. I think it's utterly bizarre to mash up Liebling and Baldwin. <laughs> I think of this film as a film that is interested in history without historicity. I think of Wes Anderson as being always interested in history without historicity. That's why he's like, oh yeah, this film takes place somewhere between 1925 and 1975, because that's the years the French Dispatch was operating. Mm -hmm. In Grand Budapest Hotel, it's kind of after World War I, kind of after World War II. In this sense, he's a kind of Jamesonian postmodernist par excellence. Like, I'm going to drain all the historical actuality out of this and instead just like adopt a kind of idiosyncratic nostalgia particular to me, to Wes Anderson, which is something that I think when I was 18, 17 and seeing the Royal Tenenbaums in the theater for the first time and saw this kind of romanticization through the soundtrack in that film and, and through the Glass family. Like yeah clear basis on sound during the Glass family to a kind of 1950s, 60s counterculture thing was like deeply attractive to me as a suburban white kid in Minnesota in 2001. I was just listening to Anna Kornblue talk about macroeconomic explanations in your previous episode. And, and uh, as something that I learned from Anna and your other previous guest, Annie, Mc Annie McClanahan, <laughs> in writing my first book, uh, it's very intimidating to be coming on after so many people I've read and learned from. But I think what Wes Anderson is nostalgic for is the post-war boom and and to a certain degree even elements of the late depression or world war ii era but i think especially the post-war boom and i think his historical fascination ends around 1970 1972 fantastic mr fox was published by roald dahl in 1970 moonrise kingdom is said i think in 1965 like there's this kind of fantasy of this period of general like american economic prosperity but also a time like pre-identitarian he's passively antagonistic to anything identitarian it's fordism right it's but it's fordism without industry <laughs> yeah, yeah it's fordism without industry it's, it's everything like and that's the thing with wes anderson it's, it's it's all surface all the time it's all aesthetics all the time he's this like pure aestheticism but i think he's also like the straightest aesthete like there's something intensely straight about his films so for him to take baldwin then it's so obscene like there's a like a incredible obscenity to his, his use of Baldwin in this film and Equal in Paris, which he explicitly names as one of his influences, which was published in Commentary in 1955, was published in New Yorker. Robic Wright gets jailed for six days. Baldwin was jailed for eight days, as he talks about in Paris. In the movie, it's for being queer somehow. In, in real life, it was for accidentally stealing a sheet from a different hotel. In that piece and in all of Baldwin, obviously his approach to the police is deeply antagonistic. Like he sees the police as an occupying force. In this film, like the whole thing is set in his like buddy buddies with the cops. He is dining at a meal of a chef who's cooking for the police. And it's like, you're gonna make your Baldwin figure friends with the cops? Of all the things you could do to Baldwin. And then that final moment where Howitzer says, you know, we gotta change the line, we gotta include this line. When I first saw the movie in the theater, that was the, the moment that most irritated me in the whole thing because it's this moment where, where Anderson's drawing attention to his own erasure of ethnicity and difference. You've got Stephen Park, the guy who plays Nescafier, who's your stereotypical silent Asian character. You know, he's this chef who has almost no lines whatsoever. I think he's said one word up until this final point. So Howitzer, the old white guy, the, the Anderson stand-in is, is the one who gets to come in and be like, but can't we hear more from this ethnic character? <laughs> 
my reading of that is that that Robic Wright is is correct. Like the story isn't about Nescafier. Nescafier's lines are the sort of like self exotifying thing he says in his final line is I never tasted that taste in my life. A new flavor. That's a rare thing in my age. And I'm like missing being away from home. I'm this like other, and there's this identification between the, these two foreigners about being foreigners. I'm a foreigner, you know. The city's full of us, isn't it? I'm one myself. And it's this kind of personal moment that's not part of the story. And, and Robic writes like, I don't think it should be in the story. And even at the end, he doesn't agree. There's no consensus. He's mandated by the editor to keep it in. Just like Wes Anderson keeps it in the film, drawing attention to a kind of like implicit tokenization of difference that the film is participating in by this whole fourth piece, right? Like I reread Equal in Paris and the, the ending of it, Wes Anderson is like does not understand the irony of what he has done. Baldwin is getting released from prison and he's in the court where he's about to get released and there's all this laughter in the court and and he describes this laughter in this moment that is so powerful. I was chilled by their merriment even though it was meant to, to warm me. It could only remind me of the laughter I had often heard at home. Laughter which I had sometimes deliberately elicited. This laughter is the laughter of those who consider themselves to be at a safe remove from all the wretched, for whom the pain of the living is not real. I had heard it so often in my native land that I had resolved to find a place where I would never hear it anymore. In some deep, black, stony, and liberating way, my life in my own eyes began during that first year in Paris, when it was borne in on me that this laughter is universal and never can be stilled. And that is that is a perfect description to me of the laughter invited by Wes Anderson's work. That's great. Dad, I, I want to go back to what you said kind of casually, which is that Wes Anderson doesn't understand the irony of what he's done. And I don't know, I feel like he may, that throughout the movie kind of distorts and glorifies things that are troubling and then is sort of sort of gives it a free pass like make it sound like you meant it mm -hmm. and that's what he does mm -hmm. that's the kind of the ironic turn even if he doesn't understand the, the irony of what he's done by mashing together these composite figures he makes it seem deliberate and i think that comes off really well and and just adds to the complexity of that last episode yeah i mean there is a way to read that interaction between roebuck right and howitzer as dialectical that you know, we choose which of these figures to side with and perhaps Anderson leaves for us that opportunity to see this as an excess, an over excess of power. What do you make of the fantasy that Anderson has that the institution you know, the French Dispatch standing in for the New Yorker, the magazine will die with its editor. Like, I find that to be like an almost implicit neoliberal fantasy that with the white paternalistic figure also will come the death of letters. You know, to have the Baldwin-esque interaction between Wright and Howitzer happen just before the death of Howitzer, and then the essentially liquidation of his magazine, this paternalistic editor figure that has been romanticized throughout. But the final episode is so 
intensely egoistic and narcissistic for him to have his legacy, which was supposed to be about ferociously protecting writers and art, have that be liquidated upon his death as though it no longer matters if he's not there to partake of its prestige. <laughs> I want to ask sort of with Dan's interpretation of Howitzer as Anderson. What do you make of that turn at the end that maybe Howitzer is not such a beloved figure after all? I like Dan's reading, but then I wonder what to make of the, the the very last bit where you have the staff writing the obituary. And I wonder whether or not to take that at face value as a kind of recognition at the end of the labor of contingent and precarious and often overworked people who, who participate in, in producing this, this work. The problem is that there's always this balance between irony and, and sincerity in Anderson that is difficult to read. But I, I do, I kind of want to take that at face value as a recognition of the work of others. And then the credits that roll on after the dedication, there's Harold Ross and then William Sean, and then a bunch of people. And then the very last person that they mention is Catherine White, who marries E.B. White, and who actually is a silent figure in the New Yorker history, who shapes the magazine. It's unclear what her role is. She lurks and, and, and edits and, and shapes the magazine really profoundly. And Sean acknowledges this, that perhaps more than himself or Ross, that she is a kind of invisible hand in the making of the golden age of New York. I think that we ought to at least consider taking the last few bits of, of the movie as a sincere acknowledgement of contingent labor. I love that reading, Nora. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's the necessary like dialectical opposite to the auteur figure. This is something I think about a lot with conglomeration is how we overemphasize the, the role of the author. That's one of the mythologizations that conglomeration itself wants to advance. Mm -hmm. One thing conglomeration has done is it's increased the number of figures who actually have hands in, in the work and mm -hmm. who contributed both intellectually and physically materially to the work. And, and obviously film is emphatically like that. Mm -hmm. You're encouraging us to recognize that Wes Anderson is allowing or inviting that vision of literary production. He's such a bookish writer. A.O. Scott says he's maybe our most literary filmmaker, and I think that, that it could very well be true. The bookishness, what Jessica Pressman calls bookishness, mm -hmm. the bush, bookishness of the French Dispatch is just, you know, opening shots of like the production of the magazine and, mm -hmm. and little image of like the spilled inkwell. I mean, it's just so tantalizing to a, mm -hmm. literary types. I, 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 I'm so I'm seduced by it. But, but then, you know, it also invites us to think about all of the figures. I mean, Wes Anderson gets treated like an auteur, right? He gets treated like he's the mastermind, he's the one, but we probably overemphasize his role. And there's so many other people, all of the animations, all of the set designs, all of the actors, obviously, all of his co-writers. I mean, he's just one person out of an incredible breadth of people who bring it forward. I think these two things pair together nicely to move us backward into the preceding episode in which I, what Nora says about the difficulty in parsing whether Anderson is sincere or ironic becomes even more troubling because he is then representing a revolutionary movement. <laughs> and 
he puts it under the title of politics and poetry, which again is a kind of bookish way of drawing in a kind of Marxist literary tradition. But yet there is a reading of it either as a sort of satire of social democracy from like the Jacobean coffee house all the way to Zuccotti Park. And there's so many cliches, right? Revolutionaries are young and naive. Collectives descend into factionalism because the organizers are actually really vain and self-interested, just like the capitalists are. That activists are susceptible to becoming pawns, particularly when they come in contact with sort of mass media outlets. There's all of these cliches about socialism that are getting expressed through the Francis McDormand maternalistic figure. And yet it's hard to know who we are supposed to be siding with. Is this a kind of romanticization in black and white of a revolutionary movement? Or is it him needling the, you know, the idealism of Occupy? And particularly within the, the labor conditions of the French dispatch itself, there's a lot loaded into this episode, which I think he gives more time than any other one, right? Like that it plays mm -hmm. out at a really so kind of slow pace even though these characters are not really richly developed with the possible exception of the Francis McDormand, Lucinda Cremence is the character's name. Is Wes Anderson just kind of ventriloquizing the liberalist fantasy of the failure of social democracy and the failure of revolutionary politics? I think he's trying to like make May 68 in France cute. Yeah. I rewatched it a couple times, that episode. Dan, guess to your point about like history without historicity, right? Like I have no idea where he's trying to place that. When it first appeared, I was like, okay, yes, this is 1968. And then there were things that were sort of signaling otherwise. And I found that episode to be so evacuated of any kind of like power and history and like considerations of power dynamics are just evacuated. Yeah from that episode. And I just found it kind of baffling. The figure played by Timothy Chalamet, mm -hmm. he has this little monologue looking back to when the revolution began. It was another time. It was another only. And then jokingly. Must be nearly six months ago, I guess. My sisters were still 12 anyway. You have to go metatextual to find the historicity. And Francis McDormand's character is based on Mavis Gallant, who is yeah. mostly a fiction writer, but wrote these two very long dispatches in that kind of diary form on May 68, when she was smack in the middle of it. I read them for this. They're, they're fascinating. Mm -hmm. And Timothy Chalamet's character is based on, I haven't seen this said anywhere, but having looked back on it, it seems very clear to me that it's based on Daniel Cohn-Bendy, who was a stateless German Jew who was living in France. He was a student, charismatic. Uh, he was called Danny the Red because of his hair more than his politics. He actually identified as an anarchist not a communist. And he did start rolling things up because of this gender separation like the movie portrays. But like May 68 in France is so many different things. Like you had the student movement, but then a week or so after the student movement, you have the workers' movement. And this leads to, and these things are never sort of coordinated very well. And the workers' right. thing ends up being like one of the largest general strikes in French history. And it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so it allows Wes Anderson to kind of like pick and choose. And he picks like the cutest version he can make. Let me 
just take this Cohn-Bendy figure, let me just take the separation of boys and girls, and let me take Mavis Gallant. A number of people have recognized this in the criticisms and been like both the Tilda Swinton character and the Frances McDormand character, the two women journalists sleep with their subjects which is like another boring cliche. And I think in this movie again and again and again, I think Wes Anderson is injuring himself. Like he's doing unforced errors. You could have just not done the stupid boring cliche and it would have made a better movie. Why does the Mavis Gallant figure, which he didn't in real life, or at least certainly nowhere on the record, I think the kind of cougar aspect of it's great. I kind of like the age gap element of it, but like kind of bullshit cliche about female journalists sleeping with their subject. Yeah, why do we need to inlay the superstructuralist argument that this journalist is in fact kind of orchestrating the revolution behind the scenes with a kind of sexual politics, right? That yeah. For me, it definitely would have rung more true had the manipulation by the Mavis Gallant figure not been layered with gender. Although let me sort of present this factoid and just let you guys decide what to make of it. Catherine White, who I mentioned, who's at the end of that list of credits, she marries Evie White, doesn't tell her kids, just brings him home two days later and they find out. And then she brings Evie White to the magazine. It is a tired cliche, but I think that this is something Anderson would have been well aware of. It's in the profile on her that's published in The New Yorker. Time and again, there's this description of her as a maternal editor, and then a kind of comparison of that with her lack of actual maternal skills and the fact that she deserts her kids. Mm. The profile by Nancy Franklin is called Lady with a Pencil, and you can find a link to it in our episode bibliography. Yeah, he takes these cliches, and there's a nod to real life, and he points to the kind of factuality of them. Make of that what you will. This is not who the character is based on. Mm -hmm. But I think it's something he would have been well aware of. Well, he's always mashing up. Yeah, they're all composites, right? So you can't exclude the possibility that that is a self-conscious choice. It's fascinating, Nora. I guess what I wonder you guys make of then is like the ways he puts this to gendered ends in the film. I'm curious what you think of like when he has these side-by-side shots of Lena Kudry and Frances McDormand and all kind of like leads up to a classic triangulation. Mm -hmm. These two women relate only through Timothy Chalamet and Mm -hmm. Nora, I don't know if you have thoughts on this. I was just thinking about that scene. It's a horrible scene. I think it's a horrible scene. Yeah, it's a horrible scene, but... Timothy Chalamet in it is doing this kind of really over-the-top imitation of Jason Schwartzman that I just was irritating to me in and of itself. She's not an old maid. She's not in love with me. She's our friend. I'm her friend. She's confused. She wants to help us. She's angry. She's a very good writer. It's a lonely life, isn't it? Like you said, Dan, it is playing on a trope or a cliche. But I guess the question of whether or not there's an awareness to it like you said, there's a kind of theatricality to the way that Shalmay does it. And he's sort of like pivoting in that scene and kind of saying these kind of rehearsed pat lines that makes me wonder whether or not that is intended to come off as pat and cliche. There's that. And there's also the element of this that we haven't talked about at all, which I'm not a film historian. So this is a hard part for me to talk about. But like the film is also in homage to all French film. And so, so many of these moments are set up merely as an opportunity to 
have like a shot that parallels a classic French film shot from like the French New Wave. It's again, his obsession with like the 50s, 60s. And so the, the irony that you're pointing out is also this irony of Wes Anderson as like surface, as esthete. You know, he doesn't mean it. He's winking at us as he's setting up this familiar trope. Your reading would be like, he's kind of inviting us to enjoy, enjoy the tropology. <laughs> Yeah. He does. He winks at that when, like, the Zafredi figure says, I'm expected back on the barricades. And the Gallant figure is like, I didn't see any barricades. He's like, Well, we're still constructing them. Yeah, this tropology of revolution that is merely existing as trope, as opposed to actually engaging the history of May 68. We get an image of him in the bathtub like Marat. Right. The hand signals that were common to occupy. Let's take a bunch of images that will be familiar to this set of themes, but let's never connect those in images in a way that actually gives credence to those themes. Doing this whole project with you, Matt and Nora, has made me realize for the first time that Wes Anderson is like Quentin Tarantino if you ran him through like mid-period CNI, yeah. like if you ran him through our aesthetic categories, it's yeah. basically like a cute interesting zany Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. 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 To move us now backwards again, probably for me the most interesting of the episodes, the one set in the prison with Benicio del Toro as the sort of tortured artist. Mm -hmm. We get in some ways the allegorization of the difficulty of turning art into product. Everything that we talked about earlier in the episode about conglomeration, how do you transition the art maker into an art product, right? And we get that even with an artist who is actively resisting. And I think that's where the sort of Wes Anderson trickery might lie. We know in the context of contemporary culture that the artist or culture worker kind of has to be an active participant in their own commodification in order to have any dream of recompense. But we have this illusion that Benicio de Torre is actually like resisting his commodification at every turn, and yet it's happening anyway, both through the magazine right. and through the sale of his painting. And so I, for me, that's the most sort of interesting meta fiction about literature, about art, maybe about film itself, is the, the packaging even in the face of resistance to packaging, resistance to marketing, the marketer wins. That's the actual figure of power. Does this ring true as a commentary on the New Yorker and on literary culture itself. I was thinking that as you as you were speaking, that what that episode does is it positions the magazine in relation to other institutions, right? Which is what we started by talking about, how the New Yorker occupies this peculiar space where it doesn't do the work of a literary agent or an editor or a publishing house, but it occupies this like weird intermediate space that allows the transition of the art object into kind of a marketplace. I was thinking about that while I was watching that segment because it gestures towards like even this institution that Anderson feels a great deal of reverence towards is complicit in the commodification of art, even as he's sort of glorifying it and he's showing us how great it is, that there's no intervention, that it's the stories we're getting are purely the product of the writer's imagination and intelligence and skill. 
when really like there are other forces at play, it goes back to what we're saying about the editorial intervention in the Baldwin episode. There are other forces here that reconstruct and reconfigure the art object and the way that we discuss it. I agree with everything that Nora said. Again, part of Wes Anderson's inhabiting in the fantasy of his mind the post-war late modernist moment where, you know, a a figure like J.D. Salinger is a figure like Benicio del Toro is a kind of J.D. Salinger figure, this refusal refusal to try to sell your stuff. He's like a Jackson Pollock figure, he's like a Thomas Pynchon figure. This this pre-1970s moment where the way you were introducing your question, Matt, Actually, at that point, an institution of publishing wasn't set up. The institution of the New Yorker wasn't actually set up for the marketers to capture everything yet. Like now, now Jonathan Franzen's like hostility to like the internet is part of his image and part of his marketability. No one can escape that now. In time, by the 80s and 90s, Salinger and Pynchon's reclusiveness became part of their Aura. marketable auras too. You know, I think part of what Wes Anderson is obsessed with in the 50s and 60s is that the institutions weren't prepared to enact that co-optation yet. You know, you pointed out the cruel compositization of Liebling and Baldwin in the fact that it then allows Baldwin to be friends with the cops. And it does strike me as we're talking that in each of these three episodes, there is a kind of sympathy with the prison industrial complex oh, yeah. law enforcement, yeah. right? That we have the, the Francis McDormand character saying, You might realize you're all in this together. Even the riot police. In each of these episodes, at exactly the moment when you would expect Anderson would want to walk back from the glorification of law enforcement, he is in fact sort of making them harmless. Oh, yeah. That's really the kind of thing that is troubling about it. They are presented as harmless, sometimes buffoonish, oftentimes sympathetic, but utterly without harm. Yeah, I mean, Lea Seydoux, he uses her to play this kind of trick. It's played for a joke, both her nudity and Mm -hmm. her being a prison guard. In the opening scene where she's the female nude and he's the genius artist, he's playing the either boringly or, or wittily with mental health. We can talk about how mental health is being portrayed here, like the mad genius, Nisio del Toro. But like, he's in control. She's the object. She's the nude. She's the object of his gaze. And then she goes behind the dressing barrier and steps out as the guard, and he gets put in the straitjacket. Her nudity is used as this sort of vulnerability that actually the whole time she was in control of and she was empowered for. So, so I'm thinking about two separate things here. One I'm thinking about the use of, of gender and sexuality in the film, and the other I'm thinking about the prison industrial complex. In terms of the prison industrial complex, like there's actually a horrible violence, like that just kind of gets mentioned in passing, where the riot at the end leaves like 72 inmates dead, but but that is just glossed mm-hmm. over because Benicio del Toro or I think saved so many people, and no one gives a shit right. about like the dozens of dead inmates. So so that that's like part of the sympathy with the prison industrial complex. But then I also, in terms of the gender thing, I'm like, it makes total sense the way that that nudity is being played in the dynamic between Lea Seydoux and Benicio del Toro. But then at another level, it seems like Wes Anderson is wielding a certain degree of power by being like, I'm going to keep my camera on your body, like for a very long time, we're going to have this later point where we're going to have you in all these contortionist naked shots 
That seems to me like Wes Anderson wielding Wes Anderson's power. For the sake of the story, do we need really as much Leia Sadie's body as you're giving us? Certainly in the latter example you give, it's it's a joke, played as a kind of joke. Her ability to hold the positions, her insensitivity to heat mm -hmm. and cold, it is played as a kind of joke. So I'll end then at the beginning. The smallest episode in the French Dispatch is the Joseph Mitchells out amongst the urchins. But what it raises for me is this question, right, that the French Dispatch is on the one hand supposed to be this local color magazine, but is in fact obviously dealing with much broader context with a wider variety of genres and mediums, paratextual resources. It pretends to be highly local, but is in fact global. That is a commentary on The New Yorker, which claims, of course, to reside in this one place and I think contributes at least to some extent to the mythology of New York City, but which clearly has long been, maybe was always separate from that specific metropolitan context. This is all Nora. I'm writing a piece on this that Dan is editing. So, so it's interesting that you frame the question that way, because my understanding of the, the myth surrounding The New Yorker, and maybe Dan, you can jump in if, if you have had a sort of different experience with, with how you read The New Yorker, is that it begins as a kind of local color, very metropolitan, interesting in, in, in New York City, metropolitan, the, the prospectus that comes out in the first issue and that's available in the archives, talks about the desire for a metropolitan paper for a metropolitan audience. And so for me, that changes around um, 1945, right, with things like Hiroshima, Eichmann in Jerusalem, and then Rebecca West has a series of like really wonderful dispatches from the Nuremberg trials that then become a book. The New Yorker appears to at least trade in metropolitan credentials or interest for a kind of cosmopolitan understanding of the world. The French Dispatch, I think, begins before the local color section. They say things like it brought the world to Kansas. It had half a million subscribers in over 50 countries. It has expatriate journalists. So it's an American magazine published in France. So a real interest in a kind of global American literature. That is true of the New Yorker too, I think, right? It has this history of moving from a kind of New York centricity to a magazine interested in serious global affairs. So the work that I'm doing is looking specifically at this fiction section to see whether or not that's true. And the way I measure that is I look at how often countries are invoked. And I'm drawing here on the work of Matt Wilkins, who does a lot of digital humanities work on the geographic imagination in American literature. I'm measuring sort of instances in which other countries are mentioned um, as opposed to New York. And the results show that predominantly these stories mention the U.S. and predominantly New York, but there's a, a wide array of places that are mentioned. That is different from the kind of mythology around the New Yorker that I perceive as a kind of a magazine interested in the global. So actually what you intuit is is the correct thing, right? That it is a magazine that's that's profoundly interested in New York City, but that also has a strange relationship, like a dialectical relationship to the global, and that it follows in many ways the trend in American studies to see American literature and culture as formed by and informed by global culture. 
I'm going to pass this off to you a little bit, Dan. Does that provinciality masquerading as cosmopolitanism also describe Wes Anderson? Yeah, I, I think that's very astute. In a way, I think all of his movies come from the region of a little white boy's mind growing up in Texas. That imagination then gets channeled through Jacques Cousteau or J.D. Salinger or Roald Dahl or Harold Ross and thus gives it this sheen of cosmopolitanism. But that sheen is only ever sheen. The, the way I, I, I can actually best think about this is through Joseph Mitchell, who is one of the figures who Owen Wilson is supposed to be portraying in this, in this opening sequence. This was the happiest discovery for me of the last several weeks was I had never actually read Joseph Mitchell. And so I read his two pieces on the figure Joe Gold. Mm -hmm. The first piece is called Professor Siegel. It was published in the early 40s. It portrays this guy, Joe Gold, who is a bohemian living around, begging around Greenwich Village, who was a, a extreme eccentric. And Joseph Mitchell portrays him as in eccentric. He says, Joe Gold is a blithe and emaciated little man who has been a notable in the cafeterias, diners, barrooms, and dumps of Greenwich Village for a quarter of a century. He sometimes brags rather wryly that he is the last of the bohemians. All the others fell by the wayside, he said. Some are in the grave, some are in the loony bin, and some are in the advertising business. And already you can feel like the, the sort of sympathy between Joseph Mitchell's voice and Wes Anderson's voice and Joe Gold's voice. In that Professor Siegel piece, what happens is you get this hilarious and brilliant little crystallization of a character. But at the same time that I read it, I felt something in the density of facticity, in the density of detail, of telling detail. I felt something, like I delighted in it. I loved it. Like I love Wes Anderson's movies, but I also felt something false. It felt like, how do you know all these facts about this guy? Like, He's impossible to fact check, right? Right. That's he's the, the one. He's the one who's one of them who's impossible to fact check. And like, how do you know all this stuff? Where does you know what's true and what's false here? What's hearsay and what's real? And then he, like, twenty years later, he he's haunted by the story, and he goes back and he actually like reopens all his old files and he writes a book length piece on this figure Joe Gold. And in Professor Siegel, he never refers to himself. He doesn't refer. It's it's just externalization. But, and I, I've been thinking about the discussion between Anna and Mervey from, from the podcast, thinking about how they talk about this tension between wanting to focus on, you know, rigorous thinking and not like the easy experiential. And there's some, some element of like excising the eye that can participate in being rigorously interested in the object you're talking about, but there can also be a way that that can be deceptive. And I think in the Professor Siegel, it's extremely deceptive. And I think in Wes Anderson, for the exact same reason, it's extremely deceptive, where what you're getting is not the object, what you're getting is the pure style of the writer. So you actually are getting the experience through the prism of Joe Gold, through the prism of the New Yorker. And when, when jo Joseph Mitchell goes back, he, he starts writing about himself and why he got interested in the story in the first place. And it's much less crystallized. It's much, it pops less, but it's also utterly riveting in because you're, you're starting to see all these things he's quoted, these fascinating, weird details. Joe Gold pouring out bottles of ketchup and eating it up with a spoon in the diners or him being a friend with 
with E.E. E. Cummings. And you're starting to see it in like this much truer, realistic context of this guy who like lived this horrible life. And like you start to see it in the context of like American poverty and structural problems and like certain biases against eccentric or disabled personalities. And you're starting to see the social truth of Joe Gold's life because you're actually learning a little bit about Joseph Mitchell's own kind of process as a reporter, how he actually reported the piece. And so he's bringing himself and his experience in, but in a way that is opening the door onto the social truth of the story of Joe Gold. The reason why I bring up the sequel, because I think everything Alex Anderson does is like the earlier piece is like Professor Siegel, is these sort of false crystallizations through facticity. And the, the later piece, Joseph Mitchell could never write again. Joseph Mitchell is the guy in the French Dispatch who they say... One who never completed a single article but haunted the halls cheerily for three decades. Well, that's half true. Joseph Mitchell wrote for, you know, a couple decades and then he stopped writing and he never, after, after Joe Gold's Secret, he never wrote again. He came into the New Yorker every day for decades and he never, never wrote again. Yeah. And this is so poignant to me. And in some way, I wonder if, if it wasn't like Joe Gold's Secret was this piece where he kind of undid himself. Like he, he showed that these cute, precise profiles that he wrote for his career were actually kind of false. And, and, and Joe Gold's Secret is this kind of masterpiece of unveiling the, a certain kind of work of profile writing that the New Yorker invented. And that once he undid it, he could never write again. To me, this is also why like Wes Anderson has to stay in a certain realm of the imagination. He has to stay in Professor Siegel. He has to stay in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He has to stay in this memory of a fantasy of his mind. There does seem to be a kind of obsession with ends. There's a kind of eschatology in my mind to this film. And I know this is something that, that Dan takes very seriously from his previous work. Is this a kind of obituary? And, and if so, what is it an obituary for exactly? Yeah, I mean, he's interested in ends, but the ends are kind of like always intermediate spaces. He's interested in, in seriality, right? Like they're episodes. So it, it feels to me like it's like a red herring almost to put the obituary there and then to kind of prevail nevertheless. Yeah, and, and the obituary doesn't, like that's an end that is not, that is not completed. I, I do feel like there's this kind of trickery there. Yeah, it's a mystery. To, I, I, I think Nora's right. At the same time that I, I still like lingering on your fascination, Matt, with the editor's burial, with the decision to stop the magazine, Wes Anderson himself said he didn't know why, it just felt right that he had to kill the magazine. It makes me think of Kafka wanting Max Brod to burn all his papers, or it makes me wonder what Wes Anderson's doing with his own archive, or how is he writing forward his own legacy? Or is he just putting to bed a certain one of his fascinations? Like, I know for me, there are things that I get obsessed with and have been obsessed with for decades that at a certain point I want to put to bed. And that part of my mental life needs to be over. And I wonder if he's not putting his fetishization of The New Yorker to bed to grow beyond it. So I have two contradicting thoughts, which is there is the sense that rather than sort of a decline in sales, let's end the magazine here at its peak before we sort of have to end it because there is no revenue. The premise is that there's not enough money to print. We don't have enough money to print everything. And so I wonder if like it's a repudiation of economic forces that govern the, the periodical but then I'm also thinking about the actual history of The New Yorker, which is mm -hmm. like at that period, they're flush 
They have so much advertising revenue that Dan Menneker says that they pay like $2,000 to kill a piece in addition to the $5,000 that was promised. And there was this, William Shaw has like a long list of pieces that he, solic- that he solicits, but then doesn't publish and he pays for them all. That's very helpful, Nora. It makes me realize like, okay, so 1975 is the end of the magazine in the movie. And 1975 is also right about the moment of the unionization effort. And it is the moment of the sort of rise of marketing. It's the sort of moment of the end of the the boom and the start of the long downturn. Yeah, It's like overdetermined, actually. There's like all these reasons why Wes Anderson needs this whole thing to die. It's because like his life of the mind, his aesthetic world dies in 1975. That was Dan Sinekin and Nora Shalon. I'm Matt Siegel. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash French Dispatch. In our next episode, I'll be talking to James Livingston and Corey McCall about the end of work and the legacy of David Graeber. Until then, I'll leave you with the special theme for this season by Dan Reeder. Check out his full catalog at Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks for listening. I got all, I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work.